Whenever you or I approach skeptics and non-believers and we try to witness and share our testimony and speak to them about matters of the faith, what are some of the common objections that we might hear? That's an actual question, so if you have an answer to that, what are some common objections? Actual, actual question I'm asking, so you can talk. <laughs> Bible's not true. People just don't believe it. Yep. They think it's made up. How can God be so evil? He was a good person, not a prophet. Okay. It cuts into my drinking time. That's the number one I hear. All religions are the same. All religions are the same. Hold on, hold on. I have two people talking. You first. Well, I some they don't believe that he's the son of God, they just believe he's a prophet. They don't believe he's the son of God, they just believe he's a prophet. You were going to Oh, okay. Among them, and I've heard this already, are sharp criticisms of the Bible, such as it's full of contradictions, Science, the science in it is off, and it contains false prophecy. In fact, one influential thinker of the 19th and 20th centuries wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And among his chief criticisms and skepticisms of Christianity is that Jesus was a false prophet. This guy's name is Bertrand Russell. And Russell seems ambiguous on believing even if Jesus of Nazareth ever even historically existed, period. But if Jesus did, listen to what Bertrand Russell wrote in his book. He says, I am concerned with Christ as he appears in the Gospels. Taking the Gospel narrative as it stands, there one does find some things that do not seem to be very wise. For one thing, he certainly thought that his second coming would occur in the clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at the time. There are a great many texts that prove that. He says, for instance, ye shall not have gone throughout all the cities of Israel till all the Son of Man be come. Then he says, there are some standing here which shall not taste death till the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. And there are a lot of places where it is quite clear that he believed that his second coming would be happen during the lifetime of many then living. That was the belief of his earlier followers. It was the basis of a good deal of his moral teaching in that respect. Clearly, he was not so wise as some other people have been, and he was certainly not superlatively wise. Russell is charging... Jesus' prophecy to be false. I believe this is already on the second page of your outline. <laughs> Russell is saying, Jesus said several times to his hearers that he would return within their generation, their lifetime, and simply put, Jesus did not. That thus he is a false prophet. Now that is a very weighty accusation. <laughs> And it's not a criticism unshared by many. In fact, many books have been written to handle this accusation. We've been going through probably the longest episode of Jesus giving prophecy outside of the book of Revelation. We're in Mark's record of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew records this in his 24th chapter. Luke records this in his 21st chapter. 
We're going to finish it today, so you can take a sigh of relief. And since we are, I think it might be fitting to read all of it. Is that okay? Can you read an entire chapter of the Bible in the church? To get its entire context together. So if you're able to stand with me one last time, let's read the entire 13th chapter of Mark. And for our studies today, I will be focused in preaching on verses 28 through 37. So we'll start in Mark 13, 1. And as he, that is Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the left, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. 
when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is a weighty prophecy. Father, much of our faith rises or falls unless we trust you here. Because, Father, the question is, is are you a true prophet or not? Did all these things come to pass as you said they would? Holy Spirit, you inspired the writing of these scriptures. Holy Spirit, you can move in hearts and you can open hearts to receive your word. So we want to receive your word today. Have your way in our hearts and our minds. Give us an open mind to you, open eyes to you, and open heart to you to receive your truth. And in doing so, turn around and act on that truth that you give us. Get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Christ and King Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple. One disciple mentions how beautiful it is. It was a beautiful temple, about 35 acres large, and its circumference being about a mile. This was King Herod the Great's project. It had been under construction for already about 50 years by the time of Jesus and his disciples. It was huge and magnificent, and it was built to show off King Herod's greatness, so it was opulent and excessively grandiose. See, I went to Bible college. I know those big words. About this temple, Jesus tells his disciples that it will fall. Again, it's not even done yet in the time of Jesus and the disciples, and he says it's going to fall. Verses 3 through 4 tell us basically that the disciples asked Jesus when, as in when will it fall? Two specific questions they ask. When will this be, and what will be the sign when it will be accomplished? We see in these two questions expectation on part of the disciples that they believe that they will be around for the temple's falling. Do you see that? In Jesus' answer, I see the following general signs that he makes mention to. False prophets and messiahs, verses 6 and verses 21 through 22. Wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes and famines. Disciples taken to authorities for the sake of Jesus. The gospel being proclaimed to, quote, all nations, family betrayal and general hatred of the disciples, abomination of desolation, great tribulation, cosmic signs, son of man coming on the clouds, and then gathering of the elect. Now what we have apparently are what I count to be 11 signs. Some of you might even break those up furthermore, but 11 signs. And in between and around these signs are very important references that Jesus makes to time and to audience. Time and audience. And references to audience, starting at verse 5, I circled all this on your outline, Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. I count specifically 15 to 16 references that Jesus has for his immediate hearers. 
Whether it be, be on your guard, or when you see the abomination of desolation, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, do not believe it. My point being that in these 15 to 16 references to Jesus, talking to his immediate audience, primarily Peter, James, John, and Andrew, so tells us verse 3, there are clear implications to me that many of his immediate audience, as Jesus prophesies, will be around for what is happening here. In reference to time, it's a little less easier to define or draw out, but thankfully our clearest references to time are in the passages that we're going to study today. Nevertheless, I do note verse 7 that wars and rumors of wars must, quote, take place, but the end is not yet. Uh, Verse 8, all signs up to that point seems to be, quote, the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And what I have been doing through our entire series is going through these signs one by one and showing you first century fulfillments. We saw that there were Messiah claimants in the first century. Tacitus tells us of wars in all parts of the empire, both inter-civil and international. We saw records of earthquakes and famines. We noted the book of Acts gives us a lot of encounters where the disciples were taken before authorities. I took you to places like Acts 2, verse 5, and Colossians 1, verse 6, and verse 23, where we see evidences in biblical language where they say the gospel is being proclaimed to the whole world, that being the known world, the Roman Empire at the time. We looked at General Titus entering Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and being given sacrifices at the temple and worshipped as the emperor, though he was not the emperor yet. We saw that as the abomination of desolation. Um, We looked at Josephus and his accounts of the horrific war of 70 A.D., saying things like bodies were clogging up the rivers and the Dead Sea. We looked at prophetic language in Isaiah 13, which is already a fulfilled prophecy in which Persia took over Babylon, and it described almost exactly the same cosmic language of stars falling from heaven, quakes in the heavens. And finally, we remembered, we saw throughout the Bible, where God comes often on the clouds. He came and speaks face-to-face with Moses in a cloud. He came upon the Mount of Transfiguration in a cloud, calling Jesus his son, Uh, Vince read from Peter that very passage where Peter recalled it. And in these comings, he did not come pick up his elect and leave. That last verse about gathering of the elect, we noted that the word angels in that verse is equally translated throughout the Bible. The same word in Greek is translated as messengers and in fact refers to human messengers like John the Baptist in Mark 1-2. So now we come to the end of this text. We come to what has been our key text verse, specifically in verse 30. But more broadly, we come to the clearest statements from Jesus about the time of this fulfillment of all these signs. Nothing in the statements of time alone, or the statements of audience alone throughout Mark theme, nothing that Jesus says about his audience or time would point us to the end of the world. It is solely the language around the signs that points many to believing that Jesus is talking about the end of the world. It is the sign of his coming in the clouds that draws 
Bertrand Russell and other skeptics to the belief that Jesus was referring to the end of the world. I hope you have saw the logic and the interpretation that I preached last week. But finally, let's look at the clear scriptures of what Jesus prophesies to be the time of this happening. He states in verse 28, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. I know it's only one verse long, but whenever Luke gives this verse, these two verses, he calls it a parable. <laughs> so I know it's an object lesson. It's not a long parable, but it's a parable. Whenever I have preached parables before, I've cautioned against over-interpreting <laughs> parables. You over-interpret parables by ascribing meaning to the symbols that are not even there in the immediate text, in the context. Jesus' primary symbols here is a tree, leaves, and summer. Those are the main symbols. Jesus doesn't give us any reason to believe that he's connecting this to a previous parable, nor does any other passage or parable concerning trees and leaves say, hey, look at that parable over in the Olivet Discourse, as it were. Mark tells us, uh, what I'm saying is, is that Jesus nor Mark has given us any reason to believe, to think that we should flip back to earlier place, like Mark 11, where Jesus curses an actual fig tree. Mark places the cursing of the fig tree and its reasons between Jesus condemning the temple. The lessons from that cursing of the fig tree is evident in that passage. We do not see here in Mark 13 Jesus saying, Remember when I cursed that fig tree? <laughs> Nor do we see Jesus saying, You know how I say you are the branches and I am the vine? Do you understand what I'm cautioning you against? Don't take other parables or symbols and impose them on other parables that are likely unrelated. Does that make sense? Especially when Jesus has not said that he is connecting his parable to another. What is the reason for this parable then? Let's simply read it in context. Verses 28 and 29 says, For from the fig tree learn its lesson, and as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its fig leaves, put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Obviously, Jesus is making a reference to time, anticipation, and expectation. When Luke records this brief parable in the Olivet Discourse, Luke said that Jesus said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. And I bring that up because Jesus says, look at the fig tree and all the trees, which tells me that Jesus is not trying to single out the fig tree for any reason. Because he's bringing the idea of trees, leaves, and summer to get the main point across of noting trees as to note the changing of seasons. And Jesus brings up spring and summer and budding leaves. I'm more of an autumn guy. <laughs> so it would be no different if Jesus was saying, you get the idea that fall is coming when you see maples turning red, brown, orange, yellow, and they start falling. My guess is, un unfortunate for Jesus, they didn't have maple trees back then. Or at least in that geographical area. Maybe I'm reading too much into the text. Anyways, <laughs> Jesus is saying, simply how you note the changing of seasons. They didn't have calendars back then. Calendars like we do. But note it by the transformation of trees, whether they bud, fall, whatever. So you should recall the things I have spoken and note a changing in the seasons. That the fact that the Son of Man is coming near. I cannot be any more clearer. And I say this in response to criticism of people like Bertrand Russell, 
who cite Jesus' coming on the clouds in conjunction with the next verse, verse 30, our key verse, you need to note, underline, I need to emphasize in your minds, Jesus says to Peter, James, John, and Andrew in verse 29, so when you see these things take place, you know that he is near. Mark is quoting Jesus. Jesus is talking to Peter, James, John, and Andrew. I need to ask, do you see what I see here? Am I blind or deaf or missing something when I point out that Jesus directly infers that his hearers will see these things take place? Thus, you should know that he is near. Do you see that plainly? As I do. We move on to our key verse. And I would say what should be an arguably, what should be an arguably, the most clearest verse of time of fulfillment for all these things. Verse 30. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is a very weighty passage. We cannot underemphasize this statement, and I'm not talking its weight in direct reference to chapter 13 of Mark. I'm talking about its weight into all of Christianity. It's a statement like this that Bertrand Russell cites as his complete rejection of Christianity. And in these two verses, we see Jesus making a very weighty prophecy. He throws a very narrow gap of fulfillment on it. And then we see Jesus elevate the authority of his words over the entire universe. A very weighty passage. God forbid it, but for the sake of illustration, if I told you that the White House would be torched to the ground before my generation died, and that you can hedge your bets on my word more than you can hedge your bets on the universe sustaining you, I have made some very weighty claims. And in Jewish law and culture, should Jesus be wrong, he should be stoned to death. Of course, we know that Jesus was crucified in days from the time he gave this prophecy, maybe even double-digit hours. Nevertheless, I believe history tells us that in 70 AD, his prophecy did come true exactly as he said it would. I want you, he- I want you to hear the certainty and assertion in these verses. He says it is a matter of his truth. Truly, I say to you. I will say it probably this once, but kudos to the North Idaho version, NIV. Because unlike the King James, or unlike the New American Standard, or unlike the English Standard, what I usually read, the NIV records, truly I tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Why did they add the certainly not? Because in the Greek there is a double negative there, and it's as if Jesus is saying, truly I say to you that no, not one will pass away. And actually, I should say, the new King James picked up the slack after the King James, and they added, this generation will by no means pass away. There's an emphasis on the negative. And I see that as another visible emphasis of Jesus' certainty and assertion in this verse. Jesus is so certain that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will remain true. Jesus is knowingly and intentionally pairing his words to the value and to the worth of Holy Scripture itself. For the Jew, this was blasphemous. 
For Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, it is rightly so. That's the certainty, that's the assertion. What is he certain and assertive about? It's where the rubber hits the road in this entire passage. It's certain that this generation will not die before all these things take place. What does Jesus mean by this generation? For the Greek word generation is genea. Every time compared with the word this, out of the mouth of Jesus, his saying this generation, I would say that it is virtually undisputed by scholars, commentators, and lay readers like you and I, that when Jesus says this generation, outside of the context of the Olivet Discourse, it's understood that Jesus is referring to his contemporaries. When Jesus talks about why does this generation seek a sign or this rebellious and wicked generation, I don't think any of us ever scratch our heads and say, I wonder if Jesus means his contemporary generation there. We assume that he is, and rightly so. It is only when we come to this passage of the Olivet Discourse that we would want to do war with the plain and simple reading of this phrase. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. It's the same reason that people like Bertrand Russell went to war with this passage, because Russell saw in Jesus' words these things, the signs in between Jesus' answer to his disciple here in Mark 13.30. And the disciples question in the first place, tell us, when will these things be? And Russell saw that Jesus is saying things like the Son of Man would come on the clouds with power and glory, and, and saying things like that would happen, quote, before this generation will pass away, until all these things take place. I argue that A, Bertrand Russell is reading that verse correctly, but B, Bertrand Russell, like many commentators, readers, and scholars, are incorrect in assuming that the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and glory is a reference to Jesus' second coming. I say that because that's what I see to be a plain submission to Scripture. I say it in submission to the truth that Jesus states this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I say to that, okay, Jesus. I don't say, wait, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean by this generation, Jesus? Nor do I say, by all, do you include you coming on the clouds? I don't ask that because by definition, all includes that. Because the truth is, is that when people twist this verse, primarily twist this generation. They do it out of defense and reaction to criticism, which I argue is not the best reason to interpret or reinterpret such plain language out of the lips of our Lord and Savior. This generation has been twisted by many. Some say, Genea, unlike the other times Jesus uses it in the gospel accounts, also means kind. So Jesus is saying, this kind of people will not pass away. Perhaps referring to a frame of mind, not a frame of time. Others say generation also means race, and so Jesus could be saying this race will not pass away until all these things take place, meaning all of humanity or maybe the Jewish race. But this, like all other alternatives to this verse, ignores the fact that Jesus was referring to his contemporaries plainly throughout every section of Scripture. He uses the phrase. And that the overwhelming obviousness of the context of this generation is referring to the time of his contemporaries. J. Stuart Russell, a Christian unlike Bertrand Russell, and a commentator, I think says it best in reference to these words. 
of this generation. He says, For far, however, from accepting this decision of our Lord as final, the commentators have violently resisted that which seems the natural and common sense meaning of his words. They have insisted this because the events predicted did not so come to pass in that generation. Therefore, the word generation cannot possibly mean what it is usually understood to mean. The people of that particular age or period, the contemporaries of our Lord. To affirm that these things did not come to pass is to beg the question and something more. But we submit that it is the business of grammarians not to be apprehensive of possible consequences, but to settle the true meaning of words. Our Lord's prediction may be safely left to take care of themselves. It is for us to try to understand them. Not finding enough ground to fight in verse 30. Those who want to hold that Jesus must be referring to a future fulfillment and vindicate Jesus of error in verse 30, they look for ground to fight in the following. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the person who sees Jesus' words as future from us will say, Ah, see, Jesus has a get-out-of-jail-free card here. Because he says it might pass in the lifetime of his contemporaries, but then he turns around and confesses that he doesn't know the day or the hour. Which leaves room for the possibility that he didn't know that the day or the hour would be in his generation. Or if it would be 2,000 plus years. What I would say is not let's not look over the assertiveness, certainty, and weightiness that Jesus has just called the heavens and the earth into witness that his words... That namely, this generation will by no means pass away before all these things take place. Jesus is not using a might there. He's not saying this might happen in, the, in my generation. He's being very certain that it will. Again, he's called the universe into submission under his assertion about that. And B, so let's see that this verse 32 is not a reduction or a rescinding on the previous verses, but it's exactly what it sounds like. Jesus is saying that I know that it will be in the next 40 years, this generation. I can't tell you the day or the hour, but I've just told you what to look for. I've given you plenty of science to look for. Apart from the whole debate over the time fulfillment of what Jesus has been talking about are the interesting discussions surrounding the Trinity. Interesting that Jesus would, in verse 31, put his word on same par with Holy Scripture and his authority in line of that of God's. Interesting in verse 26 that Jesus would put himself coming on the clouds, not God, into a place where God is usually at. But then here in verse 32, he separates himself from God in terms of not knowing what God does. Here's a thought. The general thrust, as we will see as we finish our study in Mark 13, the immediately following verses, is Jesus' command to be ready, watchful, and faithful in discipleship, and to not worry when the end comes. As such, we remember Jesus was baptized at the beginning of Mark. And we have to say, and we know that he merely did it to identify with humanity's sin, though he is without sin himself. So Hebrews 4.15 tells us. Here we have in Jesus' humanity another way he identifies and experiences the things that we experience. Because you and I, if we're not careful... We can wrestle and get caught up with end-time speculation. That's why many of you are bristling. And so though I firmly believe that Jesus in Mark 13 was talking entirely about when the temple would fall, he's telling his disciples that he knows it's within their generation, he just doesn't know the date or the hour. He nevertheless identifies with humanity. 
in that in his lack of knowledge concerning the exact date, he's like every other human being. He is identifying with humanity that though Jesus' father knows, Jesus doesn't know. In other words, you and I, we don't often consume ourselves as to when the tipple fell, because that already happened. But what we do consume ourselves with is the very reason, again, that many of you have been uneasy, and that is we want to know what will the end of the world look like. We, we want to know, is it near, is it far, what do we have to look for? We have a high priest, namely Jesus, who sympathizes with our weakness. Jesus didn't know the exact day the temple fell. He couldn't comfort his hearers with that info. But listen to what he does do to admonish and to comfort his hearers with. He says in verse 33, Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The temptation for the disciples concerning the fall of the temple. And the temptation for you and me concerning the end of the world would be very similar that we could plan, estimate, and suddenly we could put a contingency on our faithfulness. In summary, Jesus has given, like I said, at least 11 signs to look for, as well as the parameters of in our generation before our contemporaries die with the culmination and the fall of the temple. That's a lot of information. However, if Jesus said to his disciples, he didn't say any of these signs, but I'm assuming it's 33 AD when Jesus is talking, and if he says, be aware, make sure you're out of Dodge before 70 AD at this date and at this hour, the disciples would have responded, I'm assuming, in an entirely different way. I'll give you a quick real story. I'll take your heads out of theology land for a while. In December of 2012, I was working Pepsi in Moscow. And all of you may have already forgotten, but two or three end of the world dates ago was December 21st, 2012. 12-21-12, um, 12, that's when the Mayans knew that the world would end. Actually, they probably just ran out of space on their calendar. But There's been a few other dates since then, because there's probably an end of the world date, maybe for every week. But anyways, I come to Moscow, Rosars, I believe it was a Friday, it was that exact day, December 21st, 2012, and find one of my co-workers glued to his phone, walking around, not feeling pop, and giving out expressions of shared grief and comfort. And he gets off the phone and he shakes his head looking at me. I would be done with my work here, because I was actually done with my route, I was just coming to help him. And he says, but one of my friends has just been really stupid. And I asked him, what happened? And he told me that his friend had basically ate up his entire savings through the first part of December, doing things on his bucket list, because he expected the end of the world to come on December 21st. You and I know that throughout our immediate history, whether it be an alien ship coming to pick us up, 88 reasons God's coming back in 88, and then 89 reasons, that last reason being because I was wrong about 88, Y2K, stockpiling and survival gear, whatever the doomsday cult, Jesus' words are this, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Hmm. There is no because there. There is no be on guard, keep awake, because you don't know when the time will come. If there's a for, as in the fact remains, you do not know when the time will come. The Christian life 
The Christian life is to be one of being on guard, keeping awake. It's not a matter of season for the Christian. It's a matter of life. Knowing when the end of the world will come would lead to what it did for my co-worker's friend, I believe. And that is base all our decisions off of when that date is. And do everything we want to do and hope that when the end comes, we're ready then. God wants us to be ready 24-7. Jesus wanted his disciples to be ready 33 A.D., not because of 70 A.D. was getting closer, but because for the life of the disciple of Christ, it is one of readiness, of vigilance, period. We will find in the next chapter that Jesus has to rebuke his disciples for a failure to keep awake and be ready. You know the story, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and having asked Peter and the others to be watchful, what happens? And he comes, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Speaking of Peter, we know a specific word that Jesus uses at the end of Mark 13. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows. Or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And we know that when the rooster crowed, it found Peter not be on his guard, but rather denying Christ. Friends, just as the disciples needed to be ready, we always need to be ready. Just as the disciples needed not be ready for merely 70 AD, how we don't just need to be ready for the end of the world. Because the end of the... As far as I think, I think the end of my life might come sooner than the end of the world. So I need to always be ready. And I don't know what the end of my life looks like. I hope I'm really, really old. I want to zoom out, though, as I have been doing with this sermon. I want to wrap this entire chapter up with one Christ-centered exhortation. Jesus is the true prophet. Why do I hold to my 70 AD interpretation of this text, and why do I preach it to you? Do I want to make converts to my view of this passage? You're welcome to think that, but I really want to encourage you that you can hold what I consider to be the most easiest, plainest, and trustworthy reading of this passage. That when people like Bertrand Russell say Jesus was an untrue prophet, he said he would come on the clouds in his generation, but he did not, I can safely respond without damaging the scriptures. Oh, but he did. He did come. I explained to you how he came on the clouds last week. You and I can read all of Mark 13 and trust every word of it without twisting it and without explaining it as a future fulfillment and without having to apologize for it. It can obviously be hard. (laughs) We had to take lots of time because I had to untangle our minds from the way that millions of voices want us to read it. But at the end of the day, Jesus said the temple will fall. The disciples said, when and what can we expect to see? And Jesus answered, within a generation, here are 11 signs to look for. And lo and behold, in the first century, brought those 11 signs into fulfillment, culminating in the fall of the temple. Jesus came in judgment on the clouds in a very real way, not in a final, consummate way. Though Jesus never promised openly that he was coming back for the end of the world anywhere in that passage. Nevertheless, the Son of Man came on the clouds in a way that has been congruent with other passages of God concerning God coming on the clouds. Jesus is the true prophet. What he said came to pass and he, as he said it would. And if that is so, and I believe undoubtedly it is, I have to ask, is that power felt 
Is that urgency heard? Is that authority that heaven and earth will not pass away, but his word, is his word submitted to in that way when Jesus says anything in the Bible? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the true prophet. You open up his word, you open up to words that will remain when the world dies and the universe disappears. And you open up to hear the voice of Jesus, the voice of God becoming man, saying, I am the way to God, I am the ultimate truth in the world, and I am where you find life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He has proven it with his prophecy. And if you want to know, how does this apply to my life? I dare say you just need to open up the Bible and read it knowing that you can hear from the voice of God and that he is trustworthy, that he is authoritative. And if he is a trustworthy and authoritative what is he saying? And are you listening? And are you doing it? Do you believe him when he says that out of the heart of man comes every evil thing? Do you believe him when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing? You cannot merit the love of God by your works. You, cannot, you can only come to God through Jesus. Do you believe Jesus when he says on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do? That Jesus takes your sin... And he gives you his righteousness. Some of you say, that's all old news to me. Tell me the old, old story. <laughs> Why do I need to hear it every day? Friends, do you see how applicable this is? That this truth, right here in this passage, authorizes and gives power to every word of Scripture. Do you read it as such? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have a fear that I open up the Word of God and I'm dismissive, I'm snarky, I'm skeptical. I want to find contradictions. And that's just the truth. I want to find contradictions because if I can find something wrong in the Bible, that means I don't need to submit to you. Holy Spirit, would you remove that evil desire within my heart and my mind. But I submit to Jesus, who has the power and the authority to call his word over and above heaven and earth. Father, would I know that every day this week when I read your word, that this word will remain and heaven and earth will not. And Father, would that weight fall on me so then that your Holy Spirit can move me to be responsive and active. That I would not just hear the word, but I would do the word. Father, if you are convicting hearts today, I pray that again we would be responsive and active. That we would not ignore it. That instead that we would submit to you. Because you are our Lord, Savior, Christ, and Creator. You are the true prophet. We thank you for salvation that you have given us. We accept it over and over again. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.